Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you help me to uh, communicate your word this morning faithfully. And I pray this morning that we are able to see the beauty and majesty of this king. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we have here, what we have is a love song. Celebrating the wedding of Israel's king and his marriage to a lovely Gentile bride. So in verses 1 through 5, the psalmist cheers on the king as he rides out victoriously over his enemies. Then in verses 6 through 8, the psalmist describes the throne of the king in all its majesty. And the throne of this king is forever and ever because he has been anointed by God himself. And then in verses 9 through 17, we are presented with the glorious wedding of the king and his bride. So upon reading this psalm, you may be reminded of the Song of Solomon. There are similar themes in both songs. And in the superscription, we read, according to the lilies. And uh, Song of Solomon mentions uh, the lilies several times. So there's obvious points of contact between the two songs. And many say this song is about Solomon. But I think there's too much that doesn't fit well with what we know about Solomon. And and Spurgeon said it really well. He said, some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. So saying that this psalm is celebrating the marriage between Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh. But Spurgeon says they are short-sighted. Others, they see Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well-focused spiritual eyes see here Jesus only. Or if Solomon be present at all, it must be like those hazy shadows of passers-by which cross the face of the camera and therefore are dimly traceable upon a photographic landscape. Love the way Spurgeon uh, says things. And we're told in the superscription, this is a moschial. Your ESV footnote says that this may have been a musical or liturgical term. Um. And there's, there, we don't know completely what, what is meant by this word moschial, but through my studies through church history, it seems to be, and, and the reformers would say, it's a psalm of superior understanding uh, to impart wisdom. And another said that they are, a moschial would be an instructive ode, not an idle lay or a romancing ballad, but a psalm of holy teaching, didactic and doctrinal. This proves it to be spiritually understood. And the author of the psalm, we're told, is one of the sons of Korah. So the first eight books in book two of the Psalter, where we are now, were written by the sons of Korah. So who were these sons of Korah? So we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, it says, These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of tent, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons, and among that list are the sons of Korah. And the sons of So these sons of Korah, they're appointed by David to serve as ministers in the tabernacle after David was enthroned in Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant was brought in to rest in the tabernacle. So I think this gives us a clue as to when the psalm was written. It was shortly after the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem that God made a covenant with David promising that a seed or descendant of his would be established as king 
and that the kingdom of this king would last forever. This psalm should be understood in the context of the hope found in this Davidic king whose throne would be established forever. So the psalmist begins in verse 1. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So in verse 1, the psalmist, he's telling us what he is doing. He, is, he speaks of his heart overflowing with a pleasing theme. This word overflows literally means to simmer or boil over. And this reference to his tongue being like the pen of a ready scribe, this term, ready scribe, is the same term used to describe Ezra in chapter 7 of Ezra, of Ezra being a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. So what's being communicated here is the psalmist is skilled in the Torah. He knows his Bible, he knows how to navigate it, and he knows the promises of God. This psalmist, he is a man of the book. The psalmist is stewing on the word of God, stewing on the promises made by God, and his heart is just just boiling over with joy and gladness over the word of God. The picture that comes to mind for me is when you're, boy, when you're, when you're making spaghetti because your kids have begged for it all week and you finally give in and you've got your, your pot of boiling water and you've probably got a too, too small of a pot, like Kristen, and when you put the spaghetti in, the pot boils over onto the stove. This psalmist, the promises are just welling up inside of him from God and in his word that he's just boiling over with gladness and excitement. He's so delighted in God's word. And so when was the last time that you were this excited about God's word, the way the psalmist is here today, to where you would say, I'm just just boiling over with excitement and gladness over the God's word? Or are you even studying God's word? So let's learn from the psalmist here and study the word of God and so hope in its promises that we feel as though our hearts are going to boil over with joy like he is here described in the psalm. This psalmist, as well as other Old Testament authors, they were steeped in the word of God. So the prophets, they spoke the very words of God and yet they were informed by earlier scripture. A prophet like Isaiah would have known the Torah better than you and I. And although his writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit and authoritative, he was still informed by earlier revelation of Scripture. So this is the case for the psalmist here. The psalmist, he knows his Bible. He knows the Torah. He knows the promises of God. And he knows the promises that God has made concerning the one that would crush the head of the serpent, reversing the curse and reconciling the people to God. So allow me to set the stage, all right, to show you some of the promises in the scriptures that I think the psalmist is stewing on, causing his heart to overflow with joy. Going all the way back to the Garden, garden of Eden in Genesis, God has created the world and he calls his creation very good. He places Adam and Eve in the garden where they have a personal relationship with God and they're given dominion over creation. We know that rather than remaining obedient to God, they fell into the temptation of the serpent, and they sinned against God. All of mankind fell in Adam. We fell under the curse and dominion of sin, and we were separated from God, and all creation fell with us. 
But by God's grace and love for the world, he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3.15 that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. So Adam failed as the federal head of mankind, but a new Adam would be born that would crush the head of the serpent and make all things right again. So this longing for the promised seed of the woman informs the whole biblical narrative. This longing and looking to the promised seed, it continues on to Abraham, where God tells him in Genesis chapter 22, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring or seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, the word here for offspring is literally seed. And Paul assures us in Galatians that this promise is not to seeds plural, but seeds singular. The promised seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. This promise is then passed from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob. And then we see when Jacob blesses Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this is building on an earlier promise to Abraham that kings would come from him. And now the blessing of Judah is that the serpent, the, the scepter, will not depart. It is from his descendants that kings would come. Then I'm going to move over to Numbers 24. In the Balaam oracles, we read, Balaam says, he pro- he's prophesying, and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. So remember, Abraham was told that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. One of these stars shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. He says, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. So this one's amazing to me. So remember, Abraham's descendants, they're going to be as the stars in the sky. And then this star, this, this single seed star that's going to rise out, and he's going to crush the head of Moab. And, and, and Balaam says, I see him now, but not now. But, but not now. So this is talking about one to come. So Moab is not the serpent, but much like Pharaoh, he is a seed of the serpent. And this passage looks strikingly similar to Genesis 3.15. The star or seed from Jacob is going to crush the head of Moab. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now I'm going to jump forward to the promise God made to David, and I think this promise is really fresh on this, son's, this son of Korah's mind. So I think... He, so the psalmist knows the Torah. He knows the promises. He's looking forward to a new Adam, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And I think he's well aware of this promise made to David. So 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God makes a covenant with David, promising that he would raise up a seed after him whose throne would be established forever. This king's throne and rule will never end. So this is what the psalmist is boiling over in joy and excitement about. The promised seed that will come from David's line and his kingdom will be established forever. That's why the psalmist addresses the king. He says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Because of the hope and promises of God for this king, he is seen as the most handsome. He is the one that will actualize the promises of God. You may be thinking, didn't Isaiah tell us that the Messiah, that he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him? There's no contradiction here. So Isaiah is describing Christ as the suffering servant. And this psalm is describing the glorified Christ being wed to his bride. It is likely that Jesus, after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, was not looking majestic or when he was suffering on the cross. Although some at the cross still saw his beauty and saw, said, surely this is the Son of God. But I think what the psalmist here is focused on is the character of the king. He is beautiful because he is good and righteous, and he fulfills the promises of God that the psalmist has been longing for, and grace has been poured upon his lips. So remember what they said about the words of Jesus in the gospel. No one ever spoke like this man. Because this man spoke with grace as grace is poured upon his lips. The words of Jesus were so seasoned with grace and it is by his words and from his lips that we're saved. Therefore, God has blessed the king forever. Spurgeon said of this uh, verse, he says, grace of person and grace of speech reach their highest point in him. Grace has in the most copious manner been poured upon Christ for it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell. And now grace is in superabundance poured forth upon his lips to cheer and enrich his people. So now the psalmist, he he bursts forth in gladness, cheering on the promised king of David. In verses three through five, he says, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand Teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So here the psalmist, he's calling on the king to prepare for war and ride out victoriously against his enemies. The longing of the psalmist is for the king to come and then to conquer. In splendor and majesty, the king rides out. Girded with sword on thigh, mighty for battle, the king is victorious for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. And Christ is the truest incarnation of these attributes. The psalmist is longing for a king like this. And I think we too long for rulers like this. When was the last time any of you saw a world leader and said, man, this man here embodies truth, meekness, and righteousness. (laughs) They all fell miserably. So I think, and, and, and as we're longing For a king like this, this psalmist is longing for a king like this. I think the psalmist, being informed by the Torah, I think he's looking 
to the king that is obedient to the king's law and one that's obedient to the Torah. So the king's law in Deuteronomy 17 commands the king. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. So this is when the king is enthroned um, for Israel. God commands for this king, as he sits on his throne, he is to write for himself in a book a copy of this law, this Torah, approved by the Levitical priests. And he shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statues and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So we know that power corrupts, but when the king is obedient to the word of God, he will not rule as a tyrant. He will not rule as though God's commands do not apply to him. He will not uh, lift himself up above his brothers. No, he will rule victoriously in truth, meekness, and righteousness. Christ, being the very word of God, fulfills this perfectly. Righteousness submits to God. So moving into verse 6, Psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So here the psalmist addresses the king as God. And we know that he is addressing the king here because of the first verse he says, I address my verses to the king. And it's further supported by verse 7. This king's throne is forever and ever, and his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. I think the psalmist's words here are informed by earlier promises. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, God's promises to David that the throne and kingdom of the king that would come from his seed would be established forever. And the scepter of uprightness is recalling the promise made in the blessing to Judah and the Balaam oracles. Like the promise in the Balaam oracles, this king will crush the forehead of the enemies that are trying to curse the people of God. And in verse 7, we see this king, he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. To be righteous isn't to be neutral in good and evil. So I've heard people say things like, God doesn't hate, God cannot hate because God is love. But to love what is good, you must hate what is evil. If we say we love our neighbors, we must hate what harms our neighbors. If we love truth, we must hate lies. And I believe God's wrath is because of God's love. So Elena once asked me about God's wrath concerning the plagues on Egypt and the drowning of Pharaoh in the Red Sea when we were reading the story of the Exodus. And Elena, she asked me, she says, Daddy, why would God do that? Because God is nice. And I I told her, I said, baby, I said, Daddy loves, God loves his people like a daddy loves his children. So what do you think I would do if someone hurt one of my little girls? She said, you'd crush their head. (laughs) Yes. Elena has been informed by the biblical storyline of the Messiah crushing the head of the serpent. So to be clear, so I'm not advocating for us dads to start crushing heads. All right? But what I'm saying is, Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And we should follow his example. 
So, and since this king has loved righteousness and hated wickedness, the psalmist writes, he says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So in verse 7, this is the climax of the psalm. The psalmist refers to the king as God, and now here we have this God-king being anointed by God himself. Two distinct persons in this passage are referred to as God. So there are many theologians that believe the Old Testament authors understood that there's a plurality of persons in the one true God. However, there is a precedent common in the world of ancient Israel that a people's king would be identified with their God. So James Hamilton, who, who I owe a lot uh, to for this sermon because I've taken, he's a professor of mine, I've taken a couple classes with him and he's really, my, my thinking is steeped in his. So Hamilton says that what he thinks the psalmist's understanding here is that Adam was God's visible image and likeness and something along those lines probably informs other nations who identify their kings as a representative of their gods. So Adam was created in the image and likeness of God and was given dominion like a king, but he did not love righteousness and hate wickedness, so rather he fell into the temptation of the serpent. The psalmist is looking forward to a new Adam that will rule righteously and be God's vice-regent on earth. And I think that's true, but I also think this passage means way more than that. So even if the psalmist wasn't aware of it, so we believe in the dual authorship of Scripture, right? So what the psalmist may or may not have understood fully, the Holy Spirit surely understood. And that is confirmed by the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So like sometimes, sometimes exegesis isn't that hard because we have God revealing this truth to us in the New Testament clearly. So the author of Hebrews cites this passage to show how Jesus is greater than the angels and is the incarnate Son of God. That is God the Son manifested in the flesh. And in the very next passage in Hebrews, the author cites Psalm 102, and he applies this also to God the Son. So in the book of Hebrews, citing Psalm 102, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The author of Hebrews is saying this to the Son, a psalm that is speaking of Yahweh. So the author here, he's saying the Son has laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of his hands. God the Son is the creator of the universe. And not only a created being that God used to create the universe, like, like Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But this passage identifies God the Son as Yahweh who created the universe. Yahweh is our great triune God who has existed eternally as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. So from a New Testament perspective, we could read this passage as like, therefore God the Son, God the Father has anointed you. And if you just look at the context of this passage in, in Psalm 45, what other king could have a throne that is forever and ever? What other king has always loved righteousness and hated wickedness? This king can be no other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. So I heard somewhere recently that the Old Testament could be compared to a mystery novel. So you're reading through one of these novels, and all the evidence 
is there throughout the novel for you to, to solve the case. But the author, he's written it in such a way that you just can't quite put all the pieces together. But then you get to the end of the book, and the author reveals it to you. And then you're like, oh man, how did I miss it? It all made so much sense. You put all the pieces together in your mind. It was all there before, but you just couldn't quite see it. And I think that's the way the Old Testament is. The Trinity, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the identity of the Messiah, all the information is there in the Old Testament, but we can't quite put all the pieces together until God reveals it in the New Testament. And we read further that this king, he's been anointed, but not by a man like other kings. This king has been anointed by God himself. And this word anointed literally means, it means Messiah. This king has been Messiahed. The the Messiah, he's the anointed one by God. And this is the same anointed one that is in Psalm 2. Where Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. So just like in Psalm 2, the Messiah, he's triumphant over his enemies and is enthroned as king over the nations and anointed with the oil of gladness. So the psalmist goes on in verse 8. He describes the throne of the king saying, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. We can imagine the beauty and majesty of this victorious king on his throne. You can smell the fragrance of the perfumed robes, myrrh and aloes and cassia. You can almost hear the music played by the ivory stringed instruments. See, all our senses are engaged by the description of the king on his throne and the peace that comes from his reign. So now we're moving from the king's conquest and the king's throne. The psalmist describes the king's wedding. So Psalm 45, verses 9 through 15. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she has led to the king, with her virgin companions falling behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The daughters of kings here are from the king's conquest of the kingdoms in the earlier section. But notice how they are treated. They're treated delicately and honorably. Much differently than you could imagine many conquered peoples, women have been treated. We could have just imagined the horrors that women have experienced when their people are conquered. But these women are called ladies of honor. And the queen is clothed in the purest gold. Much like the description of the king's beauty in the earlier passages, here we are given a description of the beauty of the king's bride. And what is commanded to the queen, who is called, O daughter, by the psalmist? He says, listen, he says, forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. 
I think that how this translates to us today is basically repent and turn to Christ as your king. I think about our ancestors. We're all descendants of pagans. My ancestors may have worshipped some false god like Zeus or Thor, but virtually no one worships these gods anymore. Thor was once worshipped as a mighty god of thunder and ruling with his hammer, but he has been shattered by the anointed king and his mighty scepter, only to be remembered as a joke-making, pot-bellied Disney character. Most of the old gods have been defeated and put to an open shame. Now, most of our false gods are more subtle. We may trust in our great military might to keep us safe, or we trust in the science to fix all our problems and give us all the answers, or perhaps politicians who think we, who think, we think they're going to fix everything, and bring us true peace. We worship comfort, pleasures, and entertainment, and sometimes in our arrogance act as if we ourselves are to be served as gods. And I've been thinking since Dale and Jamie preached through Psalms 42 through 44, so the psalmist in, the, in those psalms, that he's depressed, sunk down in the soul, and, and longing for his God. The psalmist feels like a deer that's panting, and, and he's thirsting for God. But I wonder how often anyone feels that kind of longing today if we're always distracted or staring at a screen, constantly being entertained. If we feel sad, we might often turn to Netflix to binge watch our favorite show or swipe through our friends' social media or watch just some mindless videos. All of these just cloud our minds, and they can keep us from longing for and experiencing God. So we may miss the boiling over gladness of the psalmist here because we miss the beauty of the king. So my point is not to say that entertainment's bad, but if it becomes our go-to for comfort and peace, so we may entertain ourselves all the way to hell if we miss the beauty of the king. So we must forget and turn from those things which are contrary to the rule and reign of King Jesus. We must repent of those things and turn to King Jesus, and he will desire our beauty and take us as his bride. The bride in the psalm is given a place of such honor that that foreign nations such as Tyre will seek her favor. And Tyre is said to be the richest of the people. The psalmist then describes the bride as glorious in her chamber, wearing robes interwoven with gold, a troop of young women that accompany her with so much joy and gladness. The book of Revelation in the passage that Jamie read this morning describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, the same marriage being celebrated in this psalm. The bride is being described as beautiful, majestic, and pure, clothed in fine linen. But maybe you read the description of this bride and you think to yourself, That's not me. That cannot include me. If the king has come seeking a beautiful bride, a pure bride, that can't include me. My sinfulness is too great. I would be more accurately described as impure than pure. I would be better described as being filthy and in filthy rags than fine linens. And I feel the same way. I feel like I can't possibly be included in such a promise. 
But, but let, let me give us some hope. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus early on is presented as the bridegroom. And John the Baptist identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at a well. The Old Testament establishes a pattern that is significant when considering Jesus meeting this woman at a well. Remember, so Abraham's servant met Isaac's wife at a well. And, and Jacob met his wife Rachel at a well. And then Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. And Zipporah being a non-Israelite. So I think there's a pattern from the Old Testament here of, of the, the bridegroom meeting his bride at a well. And in verse 12 of John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she, she asks Jesus, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So when considering the passage given to us, the pattern given us to us from the Old Testament, and Jesus already being identified as the bridegroom that has come, I suggest to you that this Samaritan woman is a representation of the bride of Christ that he has come to save. And this woman is anything but pure. She's been married five times, and the man she's living with at the time is not really her husband. She's not a pure Israelite. She's a Samaritan woman. And she's drawing water later in the day, probably to avoid the shame that she feels or how she is treated by others for the kind of woman that she is. But I think that this woman is given to us as a picture of the bride of Christ that he has come for. So this woman I can identify with. This woman represents how I feel. So we feel unworthy, dirty, not worth saving, certainly not being called the bride of Christ. But it is Christ that makes us beautiful. It is Christ that purifies his bride. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. But if we come to Christ, confess him as Lord and King, willing to turn from our sins, he will save us and he will make us beautiful. He will clothe us in his own righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that makes his bride beautiful. So in the last verses of Psalm 45, verse 16, it says, In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. So I think verse 16 is addressed to the queen who is exhorted to forget her father and his, her father's house in verse 10. The fathers, they were against the king, but the sons of the queen will be made princes in all the earth. So I think it's a beautiful story of redemption. And I think it also shows how the gospel will spread throughout the earth and be passed down through generations. And in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So King Jesus will be remembered for all generations and all the nations will praise him. And there will come a time when everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. But I'm not sure this verse should be seen as completely in the future. Sometimes we have a tendency to think it's all bad. You know, people say, oh, the world, it's going to hell in a handbasket. But we are a long way from Jerusalem this morning. The psalmist is writing from Jerusalem here in this psalm. 
We're no longer pagans like our ancestors. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this morning. People of nations all over the world are worshiping King Jesus this morning. Like the little bit of leaven in your sourdough bread lump, the kingdom has expanded and, and filled the world, and I, and I don't think it's done yet. So in closing, Psalm 45 is a song of boiling over excitement and anticipation for the king in David's line that will conquer all the enemies of God and be majestically enthroned. He's going to rule in truth, meekness, and righteousness. This king will take a Gentile bride from his conquest, and she will be honored and clothed in the finest linens. This king will reign forever and ever as the nations will praise him. You know, I think of Psalm 42 and 43. The psalmist is depressed. He's cast down in his soul. In Psalm 44, the psalmist, he felt as if he was exiled from God and under a curse. The despair from those psalms arises from the absence of the king. The longing and suffering experienced by the psalmist in those chapters are relieved in Psalm 45. This is why the psalmist is boiling over with gladness, because he has hope in the coming king. And remember how Psalm 42 began. He said, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well? He says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So let us say along with the Samaritan woman, Lord, give me this water. Father in heaven, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I pray that we can just simmer on your word and study your word and boil over with gladness like the psalmist on your promises, on your goodness. I pray that we are able to see the beauty of Christ the King this morning and our need for him. May we long for him. Lord, as the wise virgins, may we be ready for the return of our King who has ransomed us and saved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.